Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon. This week's Clubhouse with Brandel Chambly is brought to you by Ogio. Did you guys know that Ogio has given away a backpack, a golf bag, and a travel bag to one of you lucky listeners? And all you have to do is go to the Clubhouse Twitter account at the Clubhouse Pod and retweet that pin tweet atop the page, tagging three of your friends, reminding them about the Clubhouse and the Clubhouse newsletter. That is it. Do that and you'll be eligible to land some serious Ogeo gear, the best golf bags around, the most convenient travel bag, and the Renegade backpack that I'm seriously obsessed with and I do not leave my house without it. Ogeo is the best. If you can't wait for the contest, you can use that offer code, the Clubhouse with no spaces, to save 20% at checkout. Great gifts for the golfer in your life, and trust me, they will not be let down. Ogeo makes golf easier. Also, I just wanted to remind everybody that golf is full of strange people and strange places, yours truly included. Their stories, they make adventures in golf. Eric Anders Lang takes viewers on another tour around the globe, searching for the craziest, most intriguing stories and personalities in the game. His season two travels takes him to southeast L.A. where he tries to make a hole-in-one. They go to Scotland in search of a lost golf course designed by old Tom Morris. Band in dunes to play 72 holes all in the same day and much, much more. You can check all that out at twitter.com backslash scratch with a K. And Eric Anders Lang may be on the Clubhouse podcast very, very soon. Well, I am finally back home after a couple of weeks on the road with the Tour Championship and with the President's Cup that was a little lopsided, as I'm sure you know. And the season gets going again. I will be back home most of the rest of the year at least to knock out more and more podcasts. And the good news is more players are available, more people around the game are available, considering that it is a little bit more of an offseason than during the main part of the year. President's Cup was something. Brandel and I touched a lot on some stuff they could do different, possible different formats, just to make it a little bit different and to, to differentiate it from what the Ryder Cup is because you think a year ago to the Ryder Cup and it was one of the most exciting golf events and then you get to the President's Cup and it just feels a little lighter considering you know the, the big lead the Americans took in to Sunday singles. But we want it to be better, we want it to be more exciting, and we want it to be an event that people focus on. So Brandon and I chat a little bit about that. And we went pretty long, so I want to cut it down to here. Just a couple of reminders. Follow that at the Clubhouse Pod, and you'll be eligible for the OGO giveaway. And make sure you sign up for the Clubhouse newsletter. That link is on the Twitter account, so you'll be able to sign up right there. It comes in your inbox on Mondays and Wednesdays. I try to bring you golf news that I think you care about and some videos and links and odds and TV times and all of those fun things. And there was a great photo of Phil Mickelson in the Wednesday newsletter this week as we get prepared for the Safeway Open and the 2018 season to kick off. So sign up for the Clubhouse newsletter. Sign up for the giveaway at the Clubhouse Pod on Twitter. And here we go. And excited to welcome in Brandel Chambly, former PGA Tour champion. You guys know him as one of the lead golf analysts on Golf Channel. You can also pick up his latest book, The Anatomy of Greatness, Lessons from the Best Golf Swings in History, where books are sold, which is is basically Amazon at this point. Brandel, first things first, I appreciate you taking some time to jump on with me. Yeah, happy to, Shane. Absolutely. I've enjoyed watching uh, Fox's coverage this year of uh, various major championships and enjoyed listening to your interviews. Well, I, I asked people on Twitter earlier this week a question, and it kind of it, it got some good response. So I wanted to ask you this as well. I asked people what their first adult set of irons were, if they could remember. And I wanted to ask you, what were your first set of, like, real, you know, three-through pitching wedge yeah. set of irons? 
Yeah. Well, the first set I got uh, was a set of Lynx golf clubs. I don't even know if you're old enough to remember <laughs> Lynx golf clubs. Uh, but uh, I started playing when I was 13 years old, and just like everybody, I had you know a mixed set. I think my driver was a D8, if I remember correctly, which uh, which accounts for my long golf swing, uh, at least in college. But but the first set I got was a set of Lynx, and uh, they were beautiful. My gosh, they were beautiful. The, the heads were these sort of, uh, you know, blondish brown, laminated, shiny. I used to shine them up after every day I played golf. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was quite proud of those clubs. But the next set that I got that was really good was a set of uh, Wilson Staff Tour Blades. And those lasted me till I got to college, and then I started playing Golden Rams, and I was a Golden Ram guy until I got on the PGA Tour. When you when you were on tour, this is, of course, a different era than, than the current players, and, of course, equipment is completely different. How many players played blades, not just because they wanted to play blades, but because that was the irons they felt were best for them when you were in your prime on the PGA Tour? Well, not that many. You know, it had already started, uh, you know, there, most players had already been sort of uh, – corrupted so to speak by the perimeter weighted iron you know the uh, the ping i2s came out in the early 80s and obviously it led to tommy armor perimeter weighted irons and titleist started uh, with a perimeter weighted iron you know, there were uh, some i think it were mp29 mizunos that were quite popular from the guys that played blades but by the mid 90s you know i got on tour late 80s and by the mid 90s there were very few players that I can remember playing blades. It was one of the things that really stood out to me about Tiger Woods, that he came along and played a very soft golf ball and played blades. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Phil Mickelson teased him that he was playing with inferior equipment, but I, I really believe that uh, that had a lot to do with his ability to beat everybody so dominantly. Yeah, I mean, he could he could move the golf ball with the irons, and he could also obviously do different stuff to a golf ball that most people couldn't do. But I always found it interesting going out even seven, eight years ago, and you'd see you know a Davis Love the Third, Tiger, and then a random maybe Rory's playing blades or Patrick Reed. But you know, for the most part, that's not really the case. I almost feel like it's one of those things where people think, "Hey, I'm going to do this. I don't care what what equipment people are saying." But we just finished up with the Presidents Cup, of course. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the Presidents Cup, but. Uh, you had a great point. I I felt like on Golf Channel, actually, Billy Kratzer, who I worked with last week on the World Feed, said the exact same thing. I mean, you guys said it, you know, differently. But you brought up the idea of of having singles first in the Presidents Cup, and I looked back over just the last few years of the Presidents Cup. I mean, of course, you know, seven and a half to four and a half this year in 2017. But I almost feel like throwing that out because of you know the motivation of the American players to go out there and play. But in 2015, it was a split, six to six in singles. If you look back in 2013, the internationals were up seven and a half to four and a half in singles, and 11 was a split. Really, you got to go back to 2009 was the last time the Americans won the singles portion of the Presidents Cup. And I just feel like, to your point, leading off with singles at least allows the internationals to feel like they have a chance. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a strong argument to be made that the United States team has so dominated the Presidents Cup by the time it gets to singles that they're not anywhere near as passionate as they should be. And, and I believe there's validity there. But there's also validity to the side that uh, foursomes is, is clear in a way, not the international strength. And with the exception of 2013, foursomes pretty much dominated the opening rounds 
handcuffs. And if I am, and again, the presumptive captain is Ernie Els, and if I'm Ernie Els, and it almost looks like the United States is not willing to give an inch on this and say, look, we're going to start with the singles. They're the least compelling of the matches anyway, uh, in my opinion. And, and, okay, they happen on the final day, so you get a winner, and there's something compelling about that. But on that day, there's so much here and there. You don't really get to appreciate um, what all is transpiring. And I, I believe coming together as a best ball or a foursome is a, is a far more compelling way to finish off uh, these matches, but uh, but yes, I would certainly be fighting for that, along with the reduced size of of the fields and matches. If I were Ernie Els, yeah, well, you know, you you make another good point, and I've I've always said this too. I mean, I think about it in the Ryder Cup as well. You start with the team format, you get to play alternate shot, and you get to play best ball, and you watch these guys out there doing something they don't do any other time of the year, and that is root for other players, that is play in a team style environment, which of course sports fans can attach themselves to that aren't even obsessed with golf, and then you end, I feel like, with almost a diluted product, even if you even if you look back a year ago at the Ryder Cup, you know, th- there was some great matches, you know, Sergio and Phil was great, of course, Patrick Reed and Rory for the first eight holes was a lot of fun, but you'd still much rather watch two guys take on two guys, because to me, that is the part of the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup that's the most fun, and I'm, I'm with you. Let the single start it and end it with, you know, Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed in the last match on Sunday potentially playing for the President's Cup. I don't know how people wouldn't get excited for that. I couldn't say it better myself. And if I were Ernie Els, I would be arguing for that exactly. So the other thing that a lot of people are saying is to add, you know, to, to, to mix the genders up here and to make and maybe not. It's, maybe it's not the President's Cup because I'm sure they don't want to do this, but to add a team event where you bring out, you know, six of the best men in America, six of the best women, and they can take on an international side. I mean, if you look at the Solheim Cup, I believe there was only one player in the top 13 in the world that was a part of either team. I think that was Lexi Thompson. I mean, of course, you know, South Korea, China, they're producing a lot of great golf talents. I feel like, if nothing else, a big change like this would bring eyeballs that don't necessarily care a lot about golf to an event because it would be teaming up men and women in a professional environment. It might, you know, I mean, the, the J.C. Mitty, J.C. Penney's mixed team classic certainly had an appeal and was, I think, pretty pretty popular amongst uh, both tours. I really don't know why it went away, but I certainly think there's uh, there's a market for for a mixed team competition event somewhere. Uh, I think it'd be very interesting, and I'd like to watch it. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like this is not a place that the President's Cup could ever go? Because it does feel like it's it's looking for an identity, you know? No, I don't. I don't think that's a place that the President's Cup needs to go. I think the President's Cup, uh, look, there have been many, many iterations of the Ryder Cup before it found competitive balance. Uh, and the President's Cup will find competitive balance. And I think the President's Cup is very important uh, in terms of growing the game globally. And uh, I think there's still a lot of, uh, of compelling golf yet to be played in the President's Cup. And that, those iterations will happen. The competitive balance will, uh, will come to fruition. And uh, we'll have, year in and year out, great team play. Well, the narrative, of course, with the team competition now moves to France in 2018. I love you called them the young rat pack. You talked about Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Ricky, uh, you know, teaming up together and playing in those matches together. There's going to be a lot of speculation. There's already started to, to be speculation about, is this going to be the, the, the next dominant team, this American team? Do you feel like 
that moves itself into the Ryder Cup, or do you feel like the Ryder Cup is just a different monster altogether because it's a little bit of a shorter format, and it seems like the Europe Europeans always show up, especially on home soil? No, I mean, the, the U.S. side needed an infusion of exuberance, of youthful exuberance that wasn't, and you can choose your adjective here, uh, but I think it's pretty clear that Phil and Tiger didn't give their best shot to the Ryder Cup and that the leadership was cluttered and chaotic because of it. Uh, these young players grew up watching Tiger play, and they grew up watching the United States lose in the Ryder Cup. So they play with sort of uh, a passion and a, and a talent that Tiger had, and they play with a bit of a chip on their shoulder in the Ryder Cup. And the combination of those two, I think, will, will make for some fantastic Ryder Cups in the next five, ten years. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I've heard a lot of people talk about the United States teams, but there are a ton of young European players that, are, if they haven't already turned professional, they are soon. I mean, you obviously think of a, a John Rahm and say he's going to be the next great player to do these things, much like I think a lot of people thought Kevin Kisner was going to be a great team player because he had that grittiness and that ability to kind of block everything out. But, you know, that is where, to me, when you look at the Europeans versus the internationals, it's not one through six it's seven through 12. And that is really to me where the Americans tend to dominate there. So it'll be interesting to see what the seven through 12 looks like on the European tour, the European squad, because it seems like for the most part, you know, 10, 11 names are kind of penciled in for France in a couple of years. But I wanted to ask you, you, you have, have, have made a career out of, you know, not, 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 you don't take shots at people. You, you, you make points about certain players and you're not scared to talk about them, and I think that's what's made you such a, such a popular figure in golf. So I wanted to ask you about three people that all are going to be looking for something in 2018, and just to give your thoughts on what either they need to do or what they need to focus on in the next four months as we get set for the next season. The first ones I'm going to start is Phil Mickelson. He's playing this week, of course, in Napa, but you know he's looking for that first victory since 2013. What do you feel like Phil needs to tweak or change to get himself near and again in that winner's circle next season? Well, you can't turn back time, you know. I mean, it's uh, age is cruel to athletes. His last four years, he's finished 38th, 38th, 12th, and 45th on the money list without a victory. He finished 22nd in uh, the Masters and then had two missed cuts in the other three majors or the other two of the three majors that he played. Uh, that, that That is certainly a trend. His club head speed is no longer up around 120. It's down around 114. This, this is a huge... Um, decay of his game and it, it happens so he has to recreate himself anew he has to he can no longer miss fairways with impunity because he's much further from the greens and he doesn't have the club head speed to get out of the rough having said that uh some golf courses will line up perfectly for him and he still has for the most part between his ears what he needs to have to uh to win championships and he still has his short game and he still has his putter um, but but those are huge. These are these are not insignificant deficiencies. Lack of club head speed means lack of trajectory and lack of spin and lack of curvature when you need it. Uh, these are huge deficiencies, uh, and it you know they beset every athlete sooner or later. But okay. uh, Betty Phil is still he's still the most popular player in the game of golf. He will, and I've said this before, he will uh, have a chance to be i think a great chance to be the oldest major champion of all time uh clearly that that could happen at the augusta for him i think 
Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if he won two or three more times before he was done with his career. I mean, Davis Love won when he was, what, 51. Uh, I think Phil Mickelson could do the same. Yeah, I've said, I've preached that I think Phil can contend at the Masters until he's 57, 58, if he stays healthy, because he's a guy that, A, obviously knows the golf course really well, but you you mentioned the club head speed. He can still get an out there Davis Love level, and Fred Couples did it for a long time. I mean, if he's hitting 270 to 290, 200, 290 plus, maybe 300 yards at the Masters when he's 56 years old with his short game, if it stays the same as it is now, I feel like he's got a chance to, if nothing else, contend and be Fred Couples 2.0, which, again, as you said, that will make the fans excited. That will get the, the fans and the patrons buzzing if he continues yeah. to do that. Yeah, I've always said that Augusta National is like the Good Samaritan that helps the old lady or old man across the street, <laughs> and that the Open Championship is like night at the museum where all the dinosaurs come to life uh, for, for different reasons. But they both provide an opportunity for the aged in the game to and give one last hurrah. So my next guy is Jason Day. Jason Day, of course, had a very uh, strange 2017, both off the golf course and on the golf course. I mean, had to deal with family issues and personal issues and also health. But this is a guy that a year and a half, two years ago, we were saying, you know, he might he might win four or five majors in the next five, six, seven years. And now he looks like a guy that might not be able to finish 72 holes. And when he does, it doesn't look as smooth as it did in 2015. No. Well, look, he's uh, he's convinced that the way to better golf is, is in the gym, and it's just wrong. You know, it's just absolutely wrong. Couldn't be more wrong. Um, that is just not the way to better golf. And to the degree that he bulks up in the gym, his golf swing will get tighter. Um, his muscles will get tighter. His golf swing will get shorter, and he'll get more injured. He's not even 30 yet, and – can't take it back to parallel because he's afraid if he does his back's going to blow up which puts him in an odd predicament um if it's shorter then you have less time to build speed so it has to be more explosive if you're more explosive then you're more apt to and prone to injury so this is a vicious cycle um that he has set himself up for look great golf and longevity are are achieved by length of golf swing and fluidity of motion. You know, all you have to do is is look at athletes who do things at an elder state in their games. Um, Federer was a great example this year. He is live. He is limber. Tom Brady is a great example. He is live. He is limber. These are fluidity of motion. You cannot bulk up and expect to have longevity in the it won't happen. It absolutely will not happen. So as much as these players fell in love with Tiger Woods when he was young and learned to play from him, they should also learn from his demise and that his career was foreshortened by his addiction to the gym, and they should get out of the gym. Well, Rory McIlroy has, has said he, he's got out of the gym, and he was my third on this list. I mean, he's a guy that said he hasn't really lifted weights in 2017. He's basically gone completely away from that. This is a guy that has one of the best golf swings on the planet, some of the most talent you'll see on a golf course, and played really well this past weekend. I mean, he played unbelievable, 64-63. Do you feel like Rory's rounding the corner in that sense and him getting away from the gym has helped his golf swing you know, hold up for a few months? Well, look, in 2012, he swung 120 miles an hour. 
Um, he swings slower than that now. So the idea went to the gym to build speed. Why else would you go into the gym? And if you're in your 20s and you're in the gym and you're not putting on club head speed, then what are you doing? Right. Um, you know, what are you doing? And, I, you know, the reason I have spoken about these players is I want to watch Jason Day age gracefully. I want to watch him play golf. I'm a big fan of his golf game. And there is not a bigger fan of Rory McIlroy in the world than me. I love the guy and I love his golf swing. And I want to watch him play golf into his 40s. He's too important to the game. You know, he's got he's such he's got such a great head on his shoulders. He's smart. He's uh, he's witty, and he's nothing but class. So, you know, look, I, I'm the old guy trying <laughs> to tell the younger player. Um, what I have learned from paying attention and playing this game and watching and observing. Now, do I wish that I had worked out a little differently when I played the tour? Yeah, absolutely. If I had it over again to do over again, I would work out uh, more vigorously than I did. I kept in shape, but I would have been uh, a lot more flexible than I was, and I certainly wouldn't have listened to the swing teachers that I would have, that I did. But uh, but no, I think Rory, you know, I've heard him say that he's spending less time in the gym. Um, he would know far better than me, and look, his, his physical, his fitness uh, uh, instructor, uh, Stephen McGregor, I believe is his name, is credentialed and smart and all of those things. But when you have fitness instructors, they want you to work out. You know, they have to validate their time with you. Uh, they have to prove their worth, and they prove it to you in the gym. I just don't necessarily think that the two align perfectly. I think live um, is better than strength. Now, do you have to have some strength? Absolutely, you do. You have to have some strength, but not at the expense of flexibility. And by the way, when he was skinny, he won majors by eight shots, um, and he swung 120 miles an hour upwards of it which is, you know, a little faster than he swings now. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was all he, need, it was all he needed, around. right? Yeah. Well, again, I want these guys around. I, I, I love them both, and I enjoy watching them play. And I've watched the greatest player of all time destroy his body with an addiction to the gym. And I don't want to see other players do it. Well, I was going to ask you this a bit later, but you've mentioned it a couple of times. I mean, you are a huge fan of golf swings. You study them. You, you, you read about them. You bring them up whenever you can historically. So I want you to give us the most overrated golf swing of all time and the most underrated golf swing of all time. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Let me think about that. The most overrated golf swing of all time. The most overrated golf swing of all time. Good gracious. Uh, <laughs> McElgrady's probably. Mac O'Grady. Uh, I can, yeah, I can remember standing on the range at Quad Cities, and and look, I liked Mac. He was a nice guy, uh, and he had a, you know, an inquisitive mind, no question about it. He was a good athlete, but I remember standing on the range, and there, he had like a cult following on the PGA Tour, and there would be ten guys every time he was on the range, five ten guys standing behind him watching him hit golf balls, and ooing and on with every golf shot. And right about the time statistics and computers sort of converged on the PGA Tour, sometime early 90s maybe, I was on the range at Quad Cities, and 
Mac O'Grady was hitting golf balls, and everybody was oohing and on. And I was watching his golf balls. He was hitting mid irons, and they were flying out with a low piercing flight, rising up, pretty much the, the same, same sort of flight. But one of them would land here, and one of them would land a little further, and one would land a little further. To the right of him was another fellow hitting golf balls that nobody paid any attention to because it, it didn't look anything like Mac O'Grady's golf swing. Uh, nobody. He was just sitting there toiling away, hitting shot after shot after shot that landed in an area about the size of a beach towel. And I walked up to the, to the uh, locker room, and I looked up Mac O'Grady, and he was like 70th in greens and regulation, and he was like 110th in driving accuracy. And then I looked up the guy to his right, and the guy to his right was first in greens and regulation, and he was first <laughs> in, in fairways hit. And I thought, you know, this, this sums up the – the the big lie in this game and and the guy who was right was doug tool who could hit it straighter than anybody could point nobody was watching him um but everybody was watching mac o'grady and if i looked and i do and i went and looked and i would also throw steve elkington's golf swing in there as the most overrated um uh in particular post 1997 uh because once steve elkington fell in love with the golf machine his ball striking statistics fell off the map compared to where they used to be. He was about 30th on average before he was about 70th to 80th on average after Mac O'Grady was always about 70th. And, and there were people out there that would tell you that Mac O'Grady had the best golf swing and hit it better than anybody in the game of golf, but it was simply just a big lie. Um, so, and the most underrated golf swing, maybe it's Calvin Pete. You know, I, I'm writing a book, uh, well, I'm, I'm about to publish um, The Anatomy of Greatness, Commonalities of the Greatest Short Games of All Time. But I have another book coming out shortly called The 100 Greatest Golf Swings of All Time. And, you know, look, Tiger Woods will be in there three different places. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like vintages of wine. Because right. you can't just refer to Tiger. You can't refer to Tiger Woods' golf swing. You have to, you have to go circa 96, circa 99. Uh, circa 2009 but you know calvin pete uh and probably the most underrated golf swing of all time was orville moody uh orville moody only won one time on the pga tour when the u.s opened in 1969 but people that watched him play and people that played with him and he, he lived in el paso and played with him and lee trevino friends of mine that knew both of them played with them said that he could give Lee Trevino to a side when it came to ball striking. <laughs> and I've watched Orville Moody hit golf balls. I've studied his golf swing, and he might have hit it as solid as anybody in the history game. Another golf swing that's overrated is, uh, is Mo Norman's. You know, I've watched Mo Norman hit golf balls, and there's this belief that he was this, you know, phenomenal ball striker. I don't doubt that he hit it solid. I don't doubt that he hit it straight. I've watched him. I've looked at his videos. I've analyzed his golf swing. But what you want to do is hit it long and straight, not short and straight. And and I've also looked at Mac, or I'm sorry, um, um, Mo Norman's record on the PGA Tour, and it just doesn't mesh up. You know, people will say that he was eccentric, or he, you know, had all of these uh, sort of psychological sort of nuances about him, or that he wasn't a good putter. And and those may be true, but the same thing's true of Bert Yancey, and the same thing's true of of, uh, of, of, of Orville Moody. And they both have extraordinary records that, that, that square with their great ball striking. Uh, 
So there's really no statistical evidence to say that Mo Norman was a great ball striker. And when I there's no there's no video evidence to show that he could hit it long and straight either. You know, could Greg Norman hit a long straight? Yes, that's <laughs> you a great ball right. Could could Mo Norman hit a long straight? No, he could hit it straight, but not straighter than Calvin Pete. You'll never convince me Mo Norman hit it straighter than Calvin Pete ever. You'll never convince me he hit it straighter than Doug Tool ever. Um, so, you know, there there are a lot of myths in this game, uh, and and I'm always looking to find the truths and. And it's, it's not always easy to find them. So I was going to ask a Tiger Woods question, but before I ask a Tiger Woods question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a comparison at you. And it's a comparison between golf and the NBA, okay? So if you, if you look at golf simply just, just at the Tiger era of golf, right? And you had Tiger Woods, in, and he's been compared to Michael Jordan you know, more times than you could probably count online. And if you think about post-Michael Jordan, the NBA went in a little bit of a lull. I mean, it was the Pistons and the Lakers were decent and the Spurs, you know, had a run. They'd win a championship every every little bit. But the NBA kind of went in a little bit of a funk. There was not a lot of identity. And then all of a sudden, we've had this influx of young, great players. Steph Curry, you know, Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, LeBron. All these guys have come up and they've made it, the NBA really probably the best league out there right now if you talk about popularity amongst young people, etc., and it doesn't seem like NBA people talk about Jordan at all. I mean, they talk about Jordan when they compare him to LeBron, all that stuff. But it's not like you're sitting around going, man, what if Jordan came back and played? So my question is this. We have a lot of the same in golf. We've got Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Dustin, and, and you've got Hideki Matsuyama. I mean, if you're looking at an international superstar that could, that could win a lot of major championships potentially. But it seems like almost every conversation turns back to Tiger why do you feel like we all are still obsessed with the idea of a Tiger return, a Tiger win, and we can't just forget talking about him and focus on the talent right now that is great on the PGA Tour? Well, my area of expertise is, is, is pretty narrow when it comes to other sports. So I have to take your word on, <laughs> on what you said about the NBA. Uh, I, I can't stand to believe Michael Jordan was twice as good as the next best player of all time in the NBA but I can't say that about Tiger Woods. His win rate was 25%. Jack Nicklaus's was 12%. His average margin of blowout victory in a major was over 10. Jack's was five, similar to Ben Hogan. So the fact that Tiger Woods was demonstrably better than what everybody considers to be the greatest player who ever played the game is what leaves people still apoplectic. Uh, we'll never see Tiger Woods again. Never, ever. I mean, ever. It will never, ever, ever happen. I mean, we saw a guy come along, uh, win majors by 15 shots, 12 shots, 8 shots, uh, and win 14 majors in a row with a 54-hole lead and at a 25% win rate. We'll never, ever see that again. When I hear young players say, I wish Tiger was back playing his best, I chuckle. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you do he not. Would, he, would, <laughs> he would destroy you not only competitively, but psychologically. His scoring average was 67.79 in 2000. In 2008, it was 67.66, but he was playing hurt and broken. In 2007, it was 67.79 to the thousandth of a stroke, exactly what it was, uh, I'm sorry, to the hundredth of a stroke, exactly what it was in 2000. So these are, these are more than a shot better than the very best on the PGA Tour a round. 
he would have psychologically destroyed today's players just like he did the players of his era. So I think it it is as we you know we're still pretty fresh uh, with Tiger Woods sort of shuffling off the competitive coil. So I think we're still trying to get our arms around just how good it was that we you know that we were able to witness. You know, I, I grew up sort of at the tail end of the Jack Nicklaus era. I, I can remember thinking we'll never see that again. And not only did we, in a very, you know, 20 years, we saw somebody twice as good. So, you know, Jack is the greatest major champion of all time, but Tiger Woods played by far the best golf. And, you know, we're lucky. We have now combination of, of what Tiger and Phil were. We have players that approach the competitiveness that Tiger Woods had. They approach it. And we have players that I think learned from Phil Mickelson in the media center. And, and I think they're, they're marvelous. And we're lucky in golf that we've never had such an infusion of successful young players with an ability to connect to not only the media, but the fans in a very positive way. And that's, that's just great for golf. And, and even though it's not the caliber of golf that Tiger played, it is in a lot of ways more intimate with the fans and uh and i think that's in a different way you could call it just as good well i mean it's that is almost my question on the back end of that is i mean the talent level now is so impressive and so deep that you've said it i mean nobody's ever going to do what tiger did because the tiger was extremely talented but he also i don't think he had as deep of a professional golf tour as we see now do you feel like this as a whole is the best golf we've ever seen in the history of the sport right now, you know, one through 125 in the world? I mean, no, I'm look, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of studies on is golf better now, deeper. And it's really not, you know, people love to say that, but it's just not true. Um, you can go to the 25th, the 50th, the 100th, the 150th spot and they're almost identical scores to what they were shooting 20 years ago to the hundredth of a stroke, almost identical. This in spite of agronomic improvement, this in spite of technological improvement, this in spite of ballistics improvement, um, this in spite of much, much shorter shots into greens. So, you know, it's a bit dubious to say that golf is better now than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Yes, People run faster now than they did 20 years ago uh, and 40 years ago. But a lot of that is because of the spikes and the, the substance of the track and the jerseys and so forth. Uh, I, I will concede equipment's better. I will concede that athletes are better in golf. But to whatever degree they're not better is because their techniques are not better than they were, uh, certainly not at the highest level. I think this, this era – has been so corrupted by poor teaching that it struggles. It struggles. And we see a lot of players enigmatically shuffling, shuffling off of leaderboards when they're 26 to 36 years of age. The reason there were 18 wins by players this year, 25 years of age and younger, is because there was an enigmatic disappearance of players 26 to 36. And you can go down the list and look at all of these players that should be competing, the Anthony Kims, the – the Hunter Mayhans, the Rory Sabatinis, you know, you can just go on and on. And I've got a list of 20 or 30 of them that you're like, where are they? Right. Where are Adam Scott? I mean, Adam Scott's, Adam Scott's a good example of that as well. Adam Scott's disappeared this season. Right. Now there are a lot of things I think that contribute to that. The, the amount of money players make, 
leads to the very human condition of complacency. And I understand it. I would probably be susceptible to it as well. But there is also the overworking of the PGA Tour, the, the overworking in the gym, and the poor golf swings that they are taught. This idea that, that um, resistance leads to power is, is just an absolute bald-faced lie that is ruinous to bodies and golf swings and abilities. And that is the reason that golfers are not playing better now or 20 years ago or 40 years ago. I mean, they should be demonstrably better, and they're not. Okay, you're the best person I can ask this to, and I know it's going to take you a second, and I know that you're a person who likes to, to think deep on stuff like this. Well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to really be quick on it. I want you to build <laughs> yeah, me. I, I want you to build me your golfer, short game driving irons mind. Build me your perfect golfer from the people you've seen and read about throughout the history of this game. Well, that's a great question. Uh, the best driver would be Jack Nicklaus, uh, unequivocally, um, and he was the best driver in his at 40 years of age of anybody ever. And that's only because that's the first time we had statistical uh, analysis available. And he set a record then that hasn't been touched since. So he would be the best driver. Boy, would I love to see him in 65, 66. He would be, he and Tiger would be neck for neck and long and mid irons. Uh, then Tiger would be the short iron player. Uh, and then when it comes to, Wedges, I would probably go Steve Stricker or Luke Donald. Wow, uh, probably Luke Steve Donald. Stricker. Probably go Steve Stricker. Yeah, Luke Donald. Luke Donald was able to overcome uh, short, crooked driving and become the number one player in the world with such precision from 175 yards and in. That is mind-boggling. Um, but, but he would certainly be in there. You know, of course, when it comes to chipping, you know, I can go back to Paul Runyon, who was unbelievable. I can go back to, oh, Seve Ballesteros around the greens, probably the best ever. And then the best putter, oh, that's, that's a tough one. I would probably go uh, Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods. Uh, but it, when it comes to the best mind, and I'm talking about not just on a golf course, but mind in terms of balance for longevity's sake, I would go with Jack Nicklaus. Um, you know, I mean, it's it, there's a reason why Jack and Tiger won 18 and 14 majors. Um, you know, they were they were that much better than everybody else. You know, it's, it's funny though. I, Bobby Locke in his book, which I thought was such an amazing book, uh, and and really it's even relevant today. But in his book, he does exactly what you've just asked. He put together the, the composite player. And I think he had uh, Sam Steed for long irons. And I think, um, I'm trying to remember. Um, but the most curious part about Bobby Locke is when he came to the putter, and, of course, people think Bobby Locke is the greatest putter who ever lived. Just try to imagine who Bobby Locke chose as the greatest putter ever. I mean, he probably went with the yeah. I was going to say he probably went with the best player ever. It's funny. It, I I almost figured you would probably take a Jack or a Tiger with the putter because, you know, you, you it's almost like they will it in. I mean, we saw Tiger roll putts in that had no business going in, and they'd go in when they needed to. You know, it was that was what he did. It's yeah. a, it's Jordan Spieth does that now. Yeah. That is why you you look at golf now, and you say, Dustin hits it forever. 
Rory's unbelievable. Jason Day is like this. And you almost forget that, that Jordan Spieth not only is a great ball striker and very underrated, but he is a kind of guy that can figure out a way to, to get a putt to go in at the right time. And that is an intangible that we don't really have a way to quantify. Yeah, I mean, Tiger or, or Jordan is beating people much the same way that Tiger did. He's, he's that much better than players from 100 and 200 yards to 125 yards. And then he's a good wedge player, and he hits them to about 18 feet. And he makes vastly more putts from 15 to 25 feet or over 25 feet than anybody else, which is exactly what Tiger did. Now, Tiger was about three to seven feet better on average than the tour average from 225 yards to 125 yards or even 50 yards. The Tiger was that much better than average. I mean, he was, he was unbelievably better than anybody else with his irons. And Jordan Spieth is, is, is kind of headed in that direction. He's not quite, you know, he's not as long. He doesn't hit him quite as well as Tiger did, but he's better than anybody else on tour. And, and there's reasons for that uh, because of his golf swing, because he has such a stable release through the golf ball. And, and when someone comes along who does something different, well, usually, and they're successful, then usually there's something to be learned from that, from that method. And, and Jordan, Jordan is, there's nothing mis- mysterious about what Jordan's doing. He hits his irons closer than people on average, quite a bit closer, and he makes more putts from 18 to 25 feet. It's a good recipe to have, I'll tell you that. I, I don't mind it. I, I, I cannot stand when people talk about, well, Jordan Spieth's a great putter. And I'm like, look at the, just get the internet on your computer and look at what he does with his ball striking. It's like, this is, right. the, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Right. Right, it's just it's just gorgeous, you know, and and he's also marvelous out of the rough, and there's you know there's reasons for that. He swings upright. He has a very stable release. This is why I always am an advocate of upright golf swings. And the next teacher that comes along that takes a player and says you need to swing more upright will be the first one I've heard say that in 15 years. And yet, there's Dustin Johnson, who's upright and and kicks ass out of the rough. And there's Jordan Spieth, who's upright and kicks ass out of the rough. And, and these are, these are not inconsequential things. I mean, being great out of the rough is very important. And it was, it was one of the reasons Tiger Woods was so good. You know, you, you have to be good out of the rough. And to do that, you pretty much have to have an upright golf swing um, to hit it high and to, uh, to do with trajectory, what you can't do with spin. All right, Brandel, I'm going to get you out on this. And uh, again, I, I know you love to look at history. Did you ever think there'd be a day where a guy would come along and at least compete against Lee Trevino for the best quote in golf? Because I think that we're getting to that point with Phil Mickelson, especially as he's gotten a little bit older and looser. Wow, like you'd have to give me some quotes from Phil. Phil says Phil says some unbelievable stuff. I mean, even the line the other day about the dancing, you know, I can't dance, you know, I, I can't do this, but I can putt. I mean, it's just he's he's so quick witted with it. I just feel like the stuff that Phil says now, and again, he seems to be a little bit looser in the press conferences than he was even three or four years ago. I feel like we're getting to that point where he's gonna, he's he's at least going to be, you know, on the same Mount Rushmore as Trevino with it when it comes to quotes. Well, Phil is, you know, look, he's great in the media center. You know, he he. Uh, I remember um, a few years ago. Well, it's been more than a few years ago when there was an issue with allowing women at Augusta National. And Karen Krause was doing, of the New York Times, was doing an article uh, about 
about that very topic. And she asked Phil and, and she said, Phil gave such thoughtful responses. And, you know, as far as she knew, she didn't know, he didn't know that she was going to ask him these questions. It sort of all came together in, a, in an afternoon, but Phil is thoughtful enough to have given this issue some thought before he got to Augusta national and got his arms around it to where he could formulate, you know, very logical, reasonable responses. And Karen said, you know, she didn't get better answers from anybody. So, you know, Phil is thoughtful. I've seen him navigate his way through the media center for years now. Uh, and I think he's pretty cagey in there. I think he's pretty crafty in there. Uh, anytime the questions start to get towards something that might cause him some concern or might be controversial, he's very good at navigating. And, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got enough power where he can tacitly uh, intimidate people without actually uttering the words that would intimidate people. And, uh, and I guess if you depend on, on him for information, you have to pay attention to that. Yeah, he he just he you you said it right. He crafts every answer like he'd almost briefed himself for it. And I always found I've always found that so interesting, especially if it's an answer that or it's a question that you know he doesn't want to answer. I just feel like he's got a way to kind of craft through it. He's like a really good coach in that sense. I, I speaking of coaches, he's gonna be he's gonna be president's Ryder Cup coach for like five times and it's gonna be great. Um do you still play golf? Do you go out and play much? I do. I was playing quite a bit of golf until I, you know, I, I came up against deadline. So I'm spending more of my time alone in a room writing at the moment. And when I finish these books, I fully intend to go play some on the champions tour because I really enjoy competing and, you know, I'm, I, I enjoy playing golf and I enjoy practicing and grinding and spending pretty much every day, all day out trying to figure golf out. Um, but it's just that, you know, between work and kids and writing, I, it just doesn't leave a lot of time to prepare. And, um, you know, I'll take a break when I finish my third book and uh, at least try to take a break for a year and, and try to get out and compete a little bit because I, I do miss it. I've got some really good friends playing out on the Champions Tour right now. I'd like to go see them, yuck it up a little bit and, uh, and put my tail on the line a little bit, you know, and, and, and try to see what I can do. Yeah, it's I, I, you know, I've worked with Steve Flesh and, you know, one of the first events we did together where we were kind of, you know, not just coworkers, but we'd kind of become buddies that we were down in Naples and it was right before he turned 50. And you could just see in his face how excited he was to turn 50 and get back out there. I mean, it really is, you know, life's mulligan, as Trevino has said over the years. And, you know, it, it's cool. I mean, so, so will you play 10 events and then, you know, do Golf Channel stuff the rest of the time? I mean, do you have a set schedule yeah. at all? Well, I, I don't know that I have time to take take ten events, but I would love to try to play five events. You know, play a U.S. Open, uh, a Senior British Open, uh, the odd event here or there. Um, you know, ten events is 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 a lot of work, and uh, um, you know, I've got only so many weeks off, and you know, I I still have to be a father and still have to prepare for my job. So, <laughs> but five <laughs> events would be would be fabulous, uh, and I would take my kids with me for those. So. Uh, if that if that works out, um, you know, I'd very much enjoy that, you know. But I'm under no illusions. Look, I watch these guys. I mean, I've taken 
15 years off from the game, essentially. Uh, I can still play, yes, but, you know, I'm under no illusions that I'm going to trot out there and and pick up where I left off competitively. These guys, these guys are hungry. I was talking to Olin Brown. I played in an event about two years ago or a year and a half ago, sort of an off-season team event, and I asked Olin Brown, I said, uh, you know, how, you know, how, how much do you work at the game? And he, he looked at me like I had three heads, like I had forgotten. He goes, I work at the game 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. And I was like, that's, that's right. These guys are, you know, they're athletes. They're, they're, they're grinding. They, they realize that, you know, the, the window is closing and they're not going to waste a day. So, you know, I, I quite enjoy watching the PGA tour champions when I watch it. I don't watch that much of it, but when I get to, I, I quite enjoy it. It's it's the most. I mean, the LPGA is the most eye-opening for people that have never seen it because you don't realize how damn good they are. You know, you know, the women out there can hit it forever, and they they hit irons right at it, and it's unbelievable. But the champions is 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 a close second. And as you said it, you know, I mean, grinding on the range on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday. I mean, it's not they're not out there having cocktails, you know, high fiving each other. It is a it is a serious, serious business, so it's cool. That'll be fun to watch. I'm excited about that, and I appreciate you yeah. taking some time to chat. I mean, it's uh, it's always good to hear your points on uh, on Golf Channel. You know, either if you agree or disagree, I always love that you you open the conversation up to some certain stuff. So appreciate it. Keep at it, and we will look for the new book. Well, thank you, Shane. I appreciate that. It's always nice talking to you. And again, uh, appreciate what you've done. Uh, you know, it's like a new voice to the game of golf, and I've enjoyed listening to it. <clears throat> It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. Many thanks to Brandle for joining us. That was a lot of fun. Always uh, interested to talk to the guy. He is he's a wealth of information around golf and always a fun listen to on Golf Channel. Check out that book. I mentioned it to you in the start. It is called The Anatomy of Greatness, Lessons from the Best Golf Swings in History. You can get that on Amazon. Jump on your app and boom, click. That thing is done. Many thanks to Ogio. They've been a great partner through this whole process. I love having them around. I love the fact that I can reach out to Ogio and say, hey, let's do a giveaway. Are you guys cool with it? And they say, yes, that's the type of people they are. They make great golf bags. The Cirrus bag is unbelievable. The Renegade backpack, I've mentioned it a lot. I use it everywhere I go. Literally, I, I always have it on my back. I have my water bottle in it. My computer's in the safe sleeve. iPad in it. Headphones, speaker, everything. I take it's it's un, actually unbelievable how many things I can have in that backpack. Plus, I always carry clubhouse koozies around. So if you ever see me at an airport or if you ever see me on a golf course, don't hesitate to come up and be like, hey, can I grab a koozie? I will hand you one right away. And I'm getting some clubhouse stickers that I'll give you as well. I'll keep those on me. You can throw those on your water bottle or on your push cart or whatever you want to do. And that'll do it for this week's Clubhouse episode. I've got a few guests lined up over the next couple of weeks. And also, if you've stayed this long, on Saturday on FS1, Texas is playing Kansas State, and I'm going to be the sideline reporter. Yes, they're allowing me to venture outside of golf and do a little reporting. So check that out. DVR it. You can send in fat faces of mine if you want on Twitter. I will laugh at all of them, and uh, and that'll be a, a different avenue and something that I've never done before, so I'm excited about that. So Austin, Texas over the weekend, then back home, and then the Top Golf Tour Finals is approaching quickly. Hope you guys have a great week and a great weekend. Hope you get out and play some golf, and I hope you make some birdies.